0: Uh, Well, as we continue in Ecclesiastes, we're in chapter 6. And um, this, we've seen so many different topics uh, as we've gone through Ecclesiastes. And the preacher here, he's talked a lot about the various ups and downs, uh, some of the injustices in life, the the bad things that come upon life, uh, how to kind of work through them, think through them. And today he's going to get even a bit more pointed, I think, in talking about. God's sovereignty and God's ability and his role in governing the entire universe. Every little piece, every little moment, every second and every life, every molecule, every atom, every speck of dust that floats through the air, every single thing is upheld and preordained by the word of his power. There's nothing that slips through his fingers. There's nothing that he's reacting to, but rather when he speaks, things happen, and when he doesn't speak, things don't happen, and there's nothing in between that. And so the preacher here is going to be going more deeply into that, and then he's going to give us some implications through 12 Proverbs that he's going to uh, spout off to help us then respond to this, because sometimes the, the response for us might be, well, if God is planned everything, and if he's in control of everything, then what's my part in this? Do I just sit around and twiddle my thumbs and wait for life to happen? What, how do we then respond if we start thinking to ourselves that God has written this story already? It seems a little defeatist. We just kind of give up and just let life happen. So how do we respond? And so the preacher here, he's going to be going into this, kind of giving us the picture of God's... Uh, plan in this world but then also some ways that we ourselves can respond how do we respond in the meantime and so I think it's going to be very helpful practical I think challenging as well we might push back in our hearts a bit I know I used to push back at this a lot when I was younger and so uh, I hope that as we go through his word not just Ecclesiastes but some other verses that hopefully bring some clarity to this that that we would wrestle with it because in wrestling, that's where we usually find uh, our, the, the solace that we're looking for, the peace that we, we hope to have is not when we just brush it under the rug or if we just accept it blindly or if we just stubbornly oppose it, but when we really wrestle with it because that's when we get into the in-between and we start uh, thinking more deeply about these things and, and that's when truth really, I feel like, uh, unlocks itself in our own minds, in our hearts. So let me pray now as we jump into Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 10, uh, and ask the Lord to work in us, ask the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth uh, as we engage with the living Word of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your great plan and sovereignty, you have brought us to where we are even now, in this place, in this room, with these people, friends and family people that have gone through many uh, ups and downs in life, many things that we know could totally derail us and many things that have derailed us. But in your goodness, you draw us back, you bring us back. You help us, you lead us, you guide us. We know that as your spirit dwells inside every single born again believer in Jesus Christ, every son and daughter of the living God, we know that your spirit does lead us and he leads us into all truth and that truth is what sanctifies us and changes us and works in us and informs us, transforms us and conforms us into the image of your son, Jesus. And so we pray that as we get to know you more, and we take your word into our hearts that your word would work powerfully in us. We thank you for the gift of your word, the gift of your holy Spirit. We love you and we thank you, and it's in the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So Ecclesiastes chapter six. we'll be starting off in uh, verse 10 here. Here's what the preacher says. He says, "Whatever has come to be has already been named." And it's known what man is and that he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? We'll stop there before we continue on into chapter 7. But what the preacher here is saying is, He's asking, well, what has already occurred in your life? And whatever has occurred, he's saying that, well, it's already happened. This thing has already come to be. It's where we get the very cliche phrase, well, it is what it is. And as uh, we were doing soundcheck this morning, John Hawthorne peered at my notes. He was cheating this morning. And um, he said, not only it is what it is, but also it isn't what it isn't. And that's very true. And it's a cliche thing, though, to say, well, it is what it is. Well, of course it is what it is. You know, that doesn't change anything. And that's kind of the preacher's point here, is that whatever has already come to pass, God has already named it to be. So why would we argue with God over it? You can't argue with the one that is stronger than you. He's saying, it is what it is. We need to learn how to accept what God has named. We need to be able to move on and move forward because God has named it already. And we want to argue, we want to state our case, but it's pointless to do so, to complain and throw a pity party and tell God it shouldn't be this way. What's already happened, God has already named. It is what it is and it isn't what it isn't. And so he asked, do you honestly think that you know what is best for you? Why, why do we argue? He says, who knows what's good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which, which he passes like a shadow. This life is actually truly short, shorter than we might think, It's so intricate. And it passes like a shadow. And we don't know what the end result is going to be. We don't know the future. We don't know what's going to come tomorrow or the next day. You know, the first time you ever watch a movie, especially a a good thriller, you know, the the music starts building. You can kind of sense something's coming around the corner. You're on the edge of your seat and you get spooked. You jump. It's tense. It's tense. There's this kind of fear factor involved. And once you've seen it again, though, good movies are worth seeing two or three times, maybe even more. And when you see it again, that that part comes around again. You know the ending. You know when it's coming. But a really good movie still kind of keeps you on the edge of your seat. But you have a little bit more peace because you know how the next scene is going to go. You're prepared, whether to close your eyes or to enjoy the moment, whatever it might be. Knowing the end kind of helps you prepare. And the best movies will still enthrall you, even though you know how it ends. There's still an excitement about it. It's the same thing maybe with a a roller coaster. You get on a roller coaster, and you enjoy a roller coaster because there's, there's a bit of fear involved with a really good, tall, and fast roller coaster. You feel safe. You feel safe because you've seen the roller coaster over and over for years on end, take thousands of people on that roller coaster. But there's still a, a fear factor involved. Sometimes maybe you think, well, that there might be the, the one day when it actually breaks. Or maybe the, the, the harness isn't tight enough. But yet we still do that because we know that there is a pretty high percentage of safety involved. And we know that it's going to end well. We're going to end up where we began. But yet it's still a, a, a fearful and a, a exhilarating feeling to be on a good Roller coaster. Even though you have confidence in the builder, you have confidence in the end result because you have seen the faithfulness of that roller coaster. You've seen the faithfulness of that architect who built uh, this roller coaster. So you entrust yourself, even though there's some fear involved. And so when it comes to God naming the events in my life, knowing that God knows what comes next, I might not know for sure. The next step but I can trust that God has named everything up until this point and I know that God is going to name everything after this point point. and I look at God's faithfulness I see his track record in my life the lives of others the lives of the people that are written about in God's word and I take great comfort knowing that what has come to pass in my life the good the bad the ugly the really ugly. I know that those things have been named by God. They've been appointed ahead of time by God. He's already written out the things that are planned for my life. And I know that many of us, we do push back and we say, well, well, doesn't that just make us puppets? We don't like the idea of someone else being in control of our lives, someone else planning out our life. We want to be in control of our life. And I remember very clearly thinking about that and thinking that way for many, many, many years because I wanted to be the one who ultimately held my future, my destiny in in my hands. But the truth of the matter, church, is I have seen my life in my control. I've seen what I do with my life when I'm the one in control of my life, or at least what I think is me in control of my life. I know what I can do with my life and it's not that great. It's not that great. It's not as great as I would like it to be. It's it's far worse. I pursue my own desires, my own selfish motivations. My life before I knew the Lord, before I met Jesus, I wasn't on a good track. I've seen my life under the sun with me in control, me at the steering wheel. And it's not a good ending. I can't trust that architect. I can't trust that builder. I can't trust that I'm gonna return safely on that track. I'm just not that good. I'm not that wise, I'm not that strong. And I've seen this world, and now you see this world, you watch the news, you go online, you read the news, you see what this world is like when man is in control. When man, in our own wisdom, we're devising plans and schemes and philosophies on how life should be. And it's crazy. It's illogical. It's wicked. And so even from that perspective of seeing what it's like when we take control and take the reins of our own life... Honestly, the thought of God not being in control and not naming everything up until this point and not having a word or a say in what is named after this point, that thought there is frightening to me. To think that I am in ultimate control of my life or at least a vast majority of things in my life and to think that this world of seven billion people, that it's up to us to make a better world and make a better place, that is frightening to me. I take great comfort in knowing that God has named everything up until this point. Even the things I don't understand, the things that I don't like. But I take great, great comfort knowing that he is the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. That he is the one who speaks everything into existence and speaks everything out of existence. I have no qualms whatsoever about trusting that he is the author of my story. I love that he writes my story. He's a much better author than me. He's a much better Lord than me. He's a much better king than me. Joby being king of his life doesn't end well. Joby being king and building his own kingdom does not go well, even for me, let alone the people around me. I trust that he is a much better author, and I take great comfort knowing that my life, my story is in his hands. That he has written the plan and novel of my life and now I get to walk in the plan that he has built for me, that he has orchestrated for me. You know, I could, I could go somewhere and buy land and I can take out a napkin and unfold it and get some crayons and I can draw out some plans for a house. And I can build that house myself and I could finish it up and I could be proud of what I made, but I'm telling you, you wouldn't want to live there. The the plumbing wouldn't work. We wouldn't have hot water. The drainage would be wrong. We'd be flooded out all the time, every winter. We'd be cold. I could be proud of what I built and it's the best that I could do, but I would be foolish to entrust myself in something that I know nothing about. And it's the same thing, then, with our life. Do you really want to be the architect? You can build a life to your own expertise, in your own wisdom, your own ability, and you can be proud of the little kingdom that you build, but you'd be foolish to want to live that way. You'd be foolish to not entrust yourself to a qualified architect, a qualified builder, someone who knows how to put in proper sewage and electricity, you'd be foolish to do it yourself. And that's just for a home, brick and mortar. We're talking about our eternal life, we're talking about parenting and marriage, relationships, how we spend our life, how we invest ourselves. And we think that we're good enough and wise enough, strong enough and and good enough architects to put that in our own hands, our own hearts and minds. See, it's exciting for me to know that my future is good because it is God who has written the story. I take, again, great comfort in that because I see the promises of God, promises that I I can bank on, that I can rest in, like the one who built that roller coaster or builds a good house I can bank on the security of that architect, knowing that I can entrust myself to those people who built those things. That's why I get on the roller coaster. That's why I live in the home that I live in. Now I know the idea of God being in control and him writing the story of your history and your future is sometimes hard for us to grasp because it's so personal. And it's indeed very important, far more important than the home we live in or roller coaster we ride. But because it's more important, then it should be more important that we understand God's sovereignty and control and power in our lives. Because church, do you realize that if God is not in total control of everything in life, if he is not totally sovereign, if he has not written the entirety of history and the entirety of the future, then you and I, we can't claim and find rest in most, if not all the promises that God has given to believers in his word. And let me explain that as we think about that. God says he'll never leave us or forsake us. But if my life and my faith and my future is in my hands and my choice, how can God keep that promise if I'm actually the one sovereign over my life? He can't make that promise. That would be an empty promise. If he promises to never leave me or forsake me, to hold me, if he promises that nothing can snatch you out of my hands, how can he promise that unless he's actually the one who authored my story? He can't make that promise. How can he promise to finish the good work that he began in me if indeed my future is up to me and I can walk away from God anytime I want and I can leave him and I can go live my life apart from him. He can't make a promise that he's gonna finish the work that he began. He can't do that. If he promises that nothing can separate you from the love of my son Jesus, he makes that promise. But how can he make that promise if he hasn't already written our story? He knows how that future is going to be because he wrote it for me. He can't make that promise. He can't make the promise that he will not turn me away if I come to him, that that he will keep me forever and ever. He can't make that promise if I have sovereign control over my life. He can't make those promises. And I can't put my hope in those promises if I know that my future is ultimately in my hands. If it's not he who's in control, but my story's up to me, well, if it's up to me, he can't make any of these promises. Now, as a parent a mom or dad, you learn very quickly, probably age three, age four when your kids are, you learn very quickly, don't make promises that you know you can't keep in even two or three hours because your kids will hold you to it. I can can think of so many times when we might have said to our boys when they're younger, hey, after lunch, we'll go to the park. Then something comes up. You know, we have to work something out or, or someone comes over or whatever. And then later, the boys are so upset. You said we were going to go to the park. Like, I, I know I said that three hours ago, but that was three hours ago. Things have changed. And, and you understand things change. But these three-year-olds, four-year-olds, they don't understand that. You learn to not make those promises. You learn to not say, hey, so on Wednesday night, your friends are going to come over and here's what we're going to do because you, you know you're out of control. You don't have control over your friends' schedules and they might say, hey, Johnny's sick. We can't come over. And then now you tell the kids that. They're five years old. They're seven years old. But you said they were going to come over. You learn as parents not to make promises that you know that you can't definitely, absolutely keep. And so you either say with all these uh, contingencies. Maybe if only and all these things and it might not happen, but we promise it will. (laughs) But we put all these contingencies on it or maybe we don't say anything until the very last second. We say, hey, guess what? Johnny's coming over in five minutes. They're on their way. This is how we learn, we adapt as parents to not make promises that we think we might not be able to keep because there's something that is not in our control or power. But we will make promises that are totally in our control and power. We know for a guarantee this thing is going to happen. And God is the same way. He would not make a promise that is outside of his control. He will only make promises that he knows he can guarantee And so when I see the promises in God's word, I think there's no way that he can keep these promises unless he's completely in control. He's not gonna tell me something and then go, oh, son, sorry, I didn't realize that that was gonna happen in your life, so we're changing course now. I actually am gonna leave you or forsake you. (laughs) He's not gonna do that. He's not responding to anything. As parents, we respond to the things that are out of our control. God does not respond to anything. He's the one who ordains, and we get to walk out what he ordains. And so if my story's been named, what does that mean then for the life that I pursue? How do I make choices, the path that I choose to take, that I, I actually do choose for my life? I, I've made choices in my life. I, I remember the day that I first chose to believe in Jesus Christ. It's August 21st, 1997. I remember it. I remember the conversation myself in my head. And I remember finally surrendering, saying, I believe this. I want to follow Jesus. I believe that he died for me. I believe that I am nothing apart from him. I remember that day that I made that decision, and I chose to believe in Jesus. That was real. It was real. Philip Reichen, this is in your notes. You can follow along with me. He explained it this way. He says, imagine a cross like the one which Jesus died, only so large that it had a door in it. Over the door were these words from Revelation. Whosoever will may come. Whoever, whoever wants to, whoever chooses, can come to me. And so you go towards this door. You say, I, I want Jesus. And that's where I was at, August 21st, 1997. These words represent the free and universal offer to the, of the gospel. But on the other side of the door, as you walk through, a happy surprise awaits the one who believes and enters. From the inside of this room that you go through, anyone glancing back can see the words from Ephesians written above the door that says, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So which is it? Well, it's it's both. It's seeing one thing from one side of the coin and seeing the other side as you walk through. The difference would be the actual versus what we might call the existential. What is the actual reality that God has chosen us and preordained this life. But then the existential reality is, is how we experience it in existence. I experienced a choice to follow Jesus. And everything that else that I've chosen in my life, I've experienced that choice. But as I walk through that, I look back and I see God's sovereign fingerprints all over it. And I understand the reality behind it. It's like any good movie. Let's take Star Wars, for instance. Darth Vader really actually chose to kill Obi-Wan. Darth Vader chose that, but it was George Lucas who wrote the story. But as you watch the movie, it was truly Darth Vader. George Lucas didn't come on the scene and kill Obi-Wan. It was Darth Vader that killed Obi-Wan. And that was Darth Vader's choice. This is best spoken in total clarity by Jesus when he said in John fifteen sixteen, you did not choose me, even though whosoever will can come to him. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. So it is Jesus that chooses us and appoints us to go and bear fruit. He appoints us, he he names, as the preacher says in Ecclesiastes, he names the fruit that we're gonna go bear. This is an amazing thing for a believer, knowing that someone has written a story for us, who has chosen us for this, but we actually get to walk these things out. We have this great author, this writer of our salvation, this great author of our story, this perfect and good story writer. And this author has written a story for us that's gonna bring him glory and is gonna bring us ultimate joy. And this will ultimately lead us even to eternal life and enjoying his presence and the presence of every other sinner who has been saved by God's grace. And so for me, I live my life with this great confidence, this great expectation, with great anticipation, not hoping in what I can make my life into, but knowing that now I am. As someone who was once cut off from God, I now get the joy of living out the life that this great author has written for me. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we are his workmanship. We're his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, that we would go and bear fruit. He chose us, and prepared good deeds for us ahead of time beforehand so we can walk out this great story that he has written. And so though everything has been named up until this point and after, though God has prepared beforehand all the good works that we're going to walk in, so even though that is true, now what should we do and seek in the midst of this? Because we certainly don't just go on cruise control because God has planned all this ahead of time. That's not how this works. There is, as I said, the actual and there's also the existential, what we actually experience in our existence. It's true that God has preordained our lives, but gives us this existential ability and responsibility to make real and meaningful decisions in our life, to aim our life, the short life, in a very meaningful way. So what ought we pursue or ready ourselves for? as we aim to steward this life and walk in the good deeds that God has prepared for us. So the preacher follows up with these observations of God's sovereignty with 12 proverbs to help guide us. So let's look at this in Ecclesiastes 7. Verse 1, he starts off with four proverbs, one proverb per verse. These proverbs focus, the first four focus on life and death. He says, A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And the focus here, he shifts a little bit on wisdom versus foolishness. In the next eight Proverbs, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. And lastly in verse 12, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So we have 12 proverbs here, individual statements, bits of wisdom. No singular theme per se, but the sum of these two main themes of contrasting life and death and wisdom and foolishness, the sum of those two main themes add up. They add up to this thought, this observation that death, hardship, and sorrow are more valuable to help us grow in wisdom and thoughtfulness and to avoid a foolish and empty life. Seems like a strange summation that he would come up with. But we have to be minded, and this is what the preacher is getting at here, is that we have to be minded that as God has named everything in our life, and sometimes we question it, we want to argue with him. And as he said earlier, many words, though, it's just much foolishness. Why would you argue with God over his sovereignty and his plan? We have to be minded and reminded that we are running a marathon in this short life. And so the preacher's giving us this insight in light of this reality that everything's been named up to this point and afterwards, and and it is foolish for us to argue with God over it. And so he gives us these statements, these proverbs, to bring to light some observations that we can pursue knowing that our story has been written. So what ought we do in the meantime, rather than just go on cruise control or wallow in our self-pity or whatever it might be? Rather than kicking against the goads and pushing back against God, we ought to learn how to submit to God's plan of wisdom, his sovereignty, trusting that he upholds all things by the word of his power and take life as it does come to us. So in your notes, you can follow here as well, the uh, five different things, kind of subcategories of these Proverbs. The first thing we can do, knowing that our life has been written, knowing that Many different things are gonna come into our life, good and bad, the first thing we can aim in our life is to pursue a life of integrity and good reputation. He says in verse one, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now a good name, a good reputation is not fulfilled on the day of your birth. You can't have a good reputation on the day of your birth. The day of your birth is a good day. You need a day of birth to have a day of death. You need a day of birth to build a good reputation, but a good name is not fulfilled until your last breath. You can have a whole long life of a good name and on the, in the last week of your life, you can ruin it all. So your legacy, your good name is not fulfilled until the day of death. And so that's a good day when you can die knowing you're gonna see your maker and die with a good name. That's better than even the day of your birth doesn't mean the day of your birth is not a good day. It's just the day of your death, especially with a good name, is better than the day you were born. And so he's emphasizing here, we ought to pursue a good name, a good reputation, a life of integrity. Verses two through four, he says to embrace times of mourning. While we go through this life that God has named, we need to embrace rather than push back and complain. It doesn't mean we shouldn't mourn or shouldn't be sad. That's not at all what he's saying but we ought to embrace times of mourning. Mourning and sorrow is better, he says, than laughter and feasting. doesn't mean that feasting and laughter is not good. He makes that clear in other parts of Ecclesiastes. It's good to enjoy the fruit of your toil, to eat and drink and enjoy the good gifts God has given. It doesn't mean that those are bad. He's just saying that it is better to have sorrow and to mourn. Why is that better Well, it's because sorrow is what makes our hearts glad, he says. It makes us glad because it makes us wise. We think more deeply, more thoughtfully. Things like death and loss and sorrow, though atrocities and tragedies in our life, they bring depth to our lives. We consider what is most important. We think deeply about what truly actually matters in life. Facing death and hardship gives us insight and clarity, helps us set our priorities. We are more appreciative of even the small things. You know, every time I go to Zambia and I leave, the last couple days, it gets a little somber with uh, me and uh, some of the kids over there. But we always remind ourselves, and I remind them and I remind myself that it's good that we're sad because it makes us realize how much we love each other. It makes us realize the great gift that we've gotten. Sometimes we take for granted the gifts we have when it's all just laughter and pleasure. It's oftentimes when we lose something, hopefully not permanently through death, but anytime you've maybe traveled away from your kids or your family, there's a sorrow, it's, 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 it's terrible. But I always remind my kids when I leave for you know, 10 days or 12 days, it's good that you're sad, it's good that I'm sad. Because it reminds us of what God has really actually given us. And so, mourning and sorrow is actually good. It's good for the heart. The next little section in verse 5 through 7 he says, To surround yourself with people of wisdom. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. He compares the laughter of fools just kind of pleasure and partying, to crackling thorns underneath a pot. Because the kind of, the cackle of laughter and foolishness kind of just sounds like thorns crackling underneath a pot. And the thing about thorns is that they're dry, small, they they, they burn fast, they don't last very long at all. So the cackling of fools laughing is kind of a short, temporary pleasure, but ultimately can't cook your, your soup can't bring you warmth, doesn't bring you much light, doesn't last very long at all. It goes out quickly. It goes out quickly just to surround ourselves by foolishness and just kind of vain, empty pleasure and laughter. There's good laughter, but he's talking about the the song of fools, the laughter of fools. And he says to endure also now, the next one, with patience and peace. Verses 8 and 9, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Take that one to heart. Anger lodges. Anger finds a home in the heart of fools. If you're a person who has a lot of anger, bitterness, and that anger has found a a place in your heart, God's word says you're on the road to foolishness if you're not already there. Solomon had much to say about this elsewhere in the book of Proverbs. He stresses time and time again the importance of being slow to speak, holding your tongue. And in light of him saying that God has already planned our life up until this point and afterwards, that should help us to hold our tongues better. If we trust God and what he is doing, we will learn to hold our tongues more often rather than broadcasting our opinion right away, spouting off what we think whenever we have the chance. In Proverbs 18:2 Solomon says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. A fool doesn't seek to understand, sit down with someone and ask questions and get to know their situation. A fool just sits down and says, you know what you need to do? You know what you're doing wrong? See, a fool doesn't seek to understand, a fool just sits down and in cold blood just points out all the things that are wrong, so that someone is doing wrong. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding a situation or a person's life, but just in expressing their opinion. Proverbs 29:20. 20, Do you see a man who's hasty in his words, who just has words all the time for everything? He says, There's more hope for a fool than for him. Proverbs 17:28: even a fool who keeps silence is considered wise. So if you are a fool, you just keep your mouth shut. And he says, when you close your mouth, everyone deems you as intelligent. So even a quiet fool looks wise. So now a wise person who also keeps quiet is actually wise. Proverbs 10, verse 19, when words are many this is what Solomon said earlier in Ecclesiastes, when we just have many words and we're arguing against God complaining, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. The more you talk, the more you sin, church. That's just, I have found that to be true in my life. But whatever, whoever restrains his lips is prudent. You're wise if you learn how to restrain your lips. And in Proverbs 18, 13, if one gives an answer before he hears, right? You're not even listening. You're just waiting to, for them to stop talking so you can give your opinion. You know you've done that before, right? So if one gives an answer before he hears, it is folly. It is his folly and it's his shame. One thing I think we can do much better at as a society, both Christian and non-Christian, but also as the church, as friends, is to hold our tongues better. We can learn to listen better. I've learned so much and I'm growing in this constantly, at least I hope that I am, I have my opinions on things. I have strong opinions on things. I think deeply about things. I have deep convictions about almost everything in my life. I'm very thoughtful about what I do and what I choose to say. And I'm continually realizing that so much of what I deeply believe is really, it's a matter of conviction. It's a matter of my values, my personal opinion, my preference. But it is just an opinion. And I've learned even in conversations, especially when someone maybe uh, you know, comes to me with some big complaint, I, I always I have this kind of general, very general policy that I always concede what I call, I concede the, the first round to them. I just, I listen. And they might have accusations against me. They might have things that they don't like, but I don't defend myself. At least I try not to defend myself. I try not to explain myself. I just, I say, I don't want to be a fool. I don't want to be hasty in my words. I don't want to just jump to my defense. I'm going to listen. I'm just going to listen for that that first time, that first conversation. I just listen. If there's something I need to apologize for, I'll do that. But I don't even give too much of my response or my opinion unless I'm asked. If they ask me, then I will. But if not, if they just want to let me know their opinion, they just want to spout off without them seeking to understand me, they just want to give me their thoughts, I'll just listen. And I'll go back. I'll consider. I'll pray. I'll think about what maybe I do need to respond to but I just, I listen. I, I try to do that. Even with emails. Sometimes if I get a, a, a tough email, an email with a complaint or something, I have this general policy. I only read it one time. And that's it. And I respond very shortly and I say, I would love to talk in person about this. And I don't read it again because you know what happens when you go over a conversation in your head over, and then, then they said this, and then she said this. And then you read over an email like, well, what does he mean by that? And you just, you go, it does not do you well. You will not give grace to that person if you do that. You you won't. You will then in turn be a fool right back to them because you're gonna now be hasty in your words. You're gonna wanna do a, a line item reply to every single thing. And that never really works. And so I just, I read it once, I put it aside and whatever most hits me that I think is most important to converse about, to work through, I figure that's what's gonna stick in my mind and that's what we'll discuss. And I'm not gonna nitpick all these other things because to me I'm just going, just, let's just move on. Let's just move on. And so I just seek to understand, I ask questions. This is why again in Proverbs 18:2, he says, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding but only in expressing his opinion. It amazes me how much we just give our opinions without asking questions. And then he also says in these uh, verses 10 through 12, to look forward. And not backward. Say not, why were the former days better than these? He said, it's not from a place of wisdom you ask that. If you look back at the good old days, that's not wise. That's not a wise thing to do. Wisdom is good with an inheritance. An advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Don't look at the past and wallow. Or live in shame. Shame. It's not wise to do so, to look back at the good old days. You're probably forgetting a lot of the bad old days that came with the good old days. As the preacher says earlier, what's done has been named. We can't argue with God over it, so it's best to press forward, to look ahead. He even says that wisdom is good with an inheritance, and if you know, an inheritance is actually for the future, not for the past. So we ought to, in wisdom, look at the future. And he says, just like money, because money obviously offers some practical protections, but wisdom provides us with even better protection. It preserves our lives. It builds us towards having a good name. It keeps us in our lives from making major mistakes. It prevents us from living an empty and meaningless life. And so now as we take all these things in light of God naming the things in our life and these, these pursuits that we can chase after now and a good name, surrounding ourselves with people of wisdom, we do that in light of God naming everything in our life. One way we can think about discipleship is that discipleship and a life of wisdom is becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. That's how I I look at sanctification and discipleship. That the end goal of discipleship is to submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit as he works his word and his truth, transforming our minds, our character, purifying and sharpening our personalities, our giftedness, our hearts, our desires, conforming all of these things into the image of Christ. Almost all of us have at one point wondered and asked, what is God's plan for my life? We've wondered that. Or maybe in some kind of desperate prayer, we've said, God, I just want to know your will for my life. Just show me what you want from me, God. But I'll tell you this morning, and I think that this is exactly what the preacher is saying, that the strategy to walking in God's will and plan for your life is not a matter of knowing your future. He says, who can actually know your future? But it's a matter of trusting God for today. You want to know God's will for your life, his plan? Trust God for today. Don't worry about tomorrow. You don't know that future But you do know that what has already been named has already been named by God. You have that today. You have that knowledge today. You know what you're living in today. And if that's been named already, you know that what's in the future has already been named. So just trust God for today and don't worry about the future. Today has its own worries, Jesus says. So just look at today and trust God today. If you pursue God today, you won't have to worry about what God's plan and will is for your life because you know it's good. And that's all we need to know. You, in your life, your responsibilities, what God puts in front of you today as a man, as a woman, trusting him for today. Jesus himself was a man, flesh and blood, just like you and me. He had a particular personality, a particular sense of humor, particular hobbies, particular tastes in foods. And yet he also suffered in this life. Things did not go his way. He was betrayed, lonely at times. I mentioned last week that we don't have to like God's plan necessarily, but we do need to learn to trust it like a doctor. And I don't want to put too much in Jesus's mouth, but in some sense, he didn't like or prefer his father's plan. At least in some sense, he said, Father, if there's any other way, can we do that? Let this cup pass from me. But he followed that up by saying, but nonetheless, your will be done and not mine. He trusted his father's plan. And he loved his father so much that he went forward with it. And his word said he did so for the joy that was set before him. He endured hardship and suffering because he knew and he trusted that the end result, despite not preferring that pain and that path, would lead to his ultimate joy. And so for us, we've we've been given the lot in our life. Everything up until now has been named. Everything in the future has been named. God has prepared beforehand the good deeds that we would walk in. Our lot in life has been named from beginning to end—good, bad, and ugly. The victories, the defeats, the joys, the sorrows, the mourning and the laughter, the feasting and the emptiness—and we know it's all fleeting, like a puff of smoke. This life, passing like a shadow. But so we still think, though, for the for the joy that we know is set before us now, we can endure the ups and downs and the hardships knowing that we're not above our master when it comes to enduring hardship and suffering. Even though we cry foul and injustice when things don't go our way, we wonder where is God in all of this? But Jesus himself, the only person who never deserved anything bad to ever happen to him, he actually endured torture and even death. So what makes us think that we should not also have hardship? Why does it surprise us when we go through hard times? Why do we think that we are above Jesus' pay grade when it comes to suffering and hardship? But we can trust that God's plan is good. We have this choice to make. We can complain and insist on better or different, looking back to the old days, or we can adjust, we can accept, we can trust God, growing in the wisdom of God, trusting in the inheritance that we have of the great and many promises that God has made that he will not break because he is ultimately in control of all things. Church, your path has been named and now you get to walk it out. You get to walk out the great story that your great author of your salvation has written for you and he's a much better author than you, a much better father than you could ever dream to be, a much better Lord, a much better king than you can possibly fathom. And you can trust that the ups and the downs, the good and the bad, everything is going to amount ultimately to your ultimate joy for all eternity. You might not like every little sidestep that he has you go in, but you can trust that plan and that purpose, and in the meantime, We trust God for today. Aiming to have a good name. Aiming to surround ourselves with people of wisdom. Pursuing a life of integrity. That is our job today. It's to cast seed and water and then trust God for the increase. We don't worry about the fruit of our life. We worry about our obedience today. If we obey today, we'll have this future that God gives us, that he promises to us. If we learn to trust in our, uh, our own understanding, we will go astray. If we take control of our life, we will go astray. But even then, we can still trust in God's faithfulness to bring us back to him, to this plan that he's already prepared for us. So I wanna pray now. I want to thank the Lord, and I want to. I'm going to close uh, right before I pray here with Philippians chapter three, verse twelve. Because we look forward to this resurrection day, the joy set before us, we endure hardship and suffering, because we know that this resurrection day is coming for us. And in speaking of his future resurrection, Paul said this in Philippians chapter three: "Not that I've already obtained this. I haven't obtained this resurrection. I'm not already perfect." but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own I haven't done this. But one thing I do, I forget what lies behind me, what's already been named, and I strain forward to what lies ahead. And for us, we know that is our inheritance, the joy set before us. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, we know your ways are good. We know that your plan is good. Though we don't understand your plan so often, though we push back against your plan so often, we know that it's good because you're good. Help us to believe in and entrust and depend on your sovereignty and control. That we would trust you in the ups and the downs, the mourning and the laughter. We are grateful, God, that you are the sovereign God of the universe in control of all things. I'm so grateful that my life is in your hands that I can trust the story that you've written for me, even when I don't understand it, even when I don't like it, even when I wanna quit and give up, you will not leave me or forsake me. You'll finish the good work that you began in me. Nothing can snatch me out of your hands. Your word will sanctify me. You'll uphold me with your righteous right hand. Nothing can separate me from you. Those are the promises that I find my greatest hope, my greatest joy in. Because they promise me that you are the author and perfecter of my salvation. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. We love you so much. We are so grateful for this great truth. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray and thank you and ask you for all these things. Amen.